episode 209 above ground podcast the return of the misfit therapist disclaimer the host of this podcast timothy patrick and will foley are by no means medical professionals however having lived experience with mental illness themselves they have gained useful perspectives on common mental health issues that some of us struggle to overcome on a daily basis by sharing their stories they hope to create connection by creating connection they hope to help you find your purpose and through purpose we can all begin to build the foundation for positive mental health. This is Above Ground Podcast. Coming at you live with real conversations about mental health from the peer perspective, it's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now your hosts, TPP and Will Foley. The lifespan in the U.S. is like the average is 78 years old. You know, and to think of the magnitude of that, 78 like how how far really are we from 78 shit and i got 27 years to go well shit but if you don't see your dad that often let's say like you know you see your dad once a year and your dad's like 74 i mean like man is that like four more times like when you think of the magnitude of that i think it's a little crazy it is crazy i mean but it goes to show that life is like we we kind of take it for granted because we don't we don't think about death because everybody's afraid of death or whatever they think is death or whatever. I'm not afraid to die. I don't care. I don't, I'm not at that moment. I don't, you don't have like a, like a dying, a death and dying fear. No, I don't because I I, like Tim and I have talked about this. Like when you want to kill yourself, you kind of lose the fear of death in a way because you know, you're just kind of hoping you, somebody puts you out of your misery sometimes. That is true. You know, the greatest gift, and I did a whole episode on this, but the greatest gift that my father could have given me is having these really open conversations about end of life and his wishes and what he wanted. So I knew exactly what to do. And, you know, it's like, I just, and it was already hard, right? And so I worked palliative care and hospice care as a social worker. And I used to always tell people on the hardest day of your life, don't make it any harder. And what I meant by that is, Like you really should have final arrangements. You know, we're always talking about birth and having babies and the excitement of it all. Well, the other very certain factor is that we're all going to die. And yet we don't talk about what we want, how we want to live if we were to get a chronic uh, health condition or something that's just going to move in a direction where we're going to need more help or it's going to expedite death. But my father did. And so the coolest part of all of that was, although it was hard, I knew exactly what to do. That's and super that, cool. Yeah. Well, actually, I have a question for you too regarding totally. that. Because we and we haven't really started. We just kind of started talking. So I just kind of yeah, ran totally. with this. So yeah. I wanted to ask you as far as because I've had these conversations with people about death arrangements. And the person that I was talking to says that it's for the family. It's not for the person that's dying. So the person who's dying's wishes weren't followed to the T because they didn't want to follow through because they didn't feel it was right for them. Where do you stand on that now as someone who's unfortunately had to do this for yourself? And then obviously working palliative care and hospice, you've obviously seen families come through so many things. And so you must have a a really wide view of it because you've seen it from both sides. I have seen it from both sides, but I never deviated from what my father wanted. I was a very good soldier, whereas obviously being in the field, I have seen people 
not honor wishes. And you know what, at the end of the day, that's something that all I can say is you have to live with. You know, I got a couple of not so pleasant comments thrown my way. My dad wanted a direct cremation and burial. He did not want, you know what he told me? He's like, do yourself a fucking favor. Don't entertain people that want to celebrate my life because they should have sent me flowers when I was alive. They should have asked me to go out to coffee, to dinner. They know what time I get off of work. If they wanted to see me and celebrate me, celebrate me in life. Don't spend my daughter's money at a celebration of life that I don't want. I'm dead. I'm going home. I know where I'm going. I'm good. And so I honored that. And it was a thing for some people. I did get messages that uh, had the, the tone of, you didn't allow us to grieve your dad. No, no, no. I'm not getting in the way of you grieving my father. You're getting in your own way. And this is what he wanted. Well, I just, I think it's important, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I don't usually fire back, but I did. And I said, look, I have access to all of my dad's Gmail, DMs in his Facebook and instant messenger. And he hasn't received a damn message from you in two fucking years. So please. So people are just interesting. It's their own. It's their own fear. They it's their own way of coping, obviously. But I don't think that dishonoring what's been asked is something that we should do. That's why it's so important. Whoever you designate as your power of attorney for healthcare and even for finances, that you know that they are going to absolutely follow through with what you want. Do you want aggressive measures? Do you want to be resuscitated? Do you understand that that means that your ribs could be broken? Do you understand that the majority of people who are resuscitated, they don't have a great quality of life. They're veggies. My dad was a biker, you know, and the way I see it is he rode straight into heaven on that damn Harley. And how dare I, for my own purposes, have him staring at some some wall and listening to like Alexa in the background. That's weird. I wasn't going to do that. Well, yeah. And so, and my dad had a great sense of humor. And so I can, I can imagine him like coming as a ghost and like, I don't know, like yanking my legs or something. I told you not to do that. Just let me go. My dad, after I withdrew care. So to be really clear, my dad said, I want a fighting chance, right? Give me a fighting chance. But if you see that I'm going to end up a vegetable, pull the plug. And that's what I did. And so I withdrew care and I was there when they withdrew care. And my dad passed in, I think, under 18 minutes. So that should have, that also was like, you know what? I absolutely did the right thing. Because 18 minutes tells me that his body was just, it was done. So he had, you know, to be clear, he had a heart attack at work, actually. And that was it. They called me and they, it took something like, I don't know, he had been gone for, they said maybe 17 minutes. And all I could think of at that point was shit, 17 minutes, there's definite brain damage. All of the rational, practical things started to run through my head. So, you know, coming now on the other side, we're approaching the one year anniversary. I miss him tremendously. This is our second time having Dr. A, the misfit therapist back, man. So it's awesome. And the reason why this came up Excellent. and I saw on your Instagram feed, I started to see a lot of stuff about conscious uncoupling and couples and relationships. So it got me piquing the interest of because Tim and I, every episode for the last, I don't know, eight, 10 episodes, the word connection comes up every week, no matter what we're talking about, who we're talking to what topic we are covering. One of our biggest connections is our intimate relationships. 
And I'm really curious because you are a therapist. And someone who's been divorced and and, someone who's getting married for a second time. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. Right. I know the stats, man. I know you do. I know you do. Let's do it. Let's get (laughs) on the damn roller coaster. Yeah, that's congratulations. Rock and roll. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. I kind of wanted to see where, how did the conscious uncoupling thing come into you? Did you use the process from your first divorce or did you use it going into your new relationship or through your new relationship? I'm very familiar with it because I've, I have the book. I've, I've read it. I've actually been using it myself. Um, I haven't done all of it, but I have ingested a lot of it. And Catherine Woodward Thomas is super like, it's just insightful and it helped me understand a lot of things. You're such an exception. And I, even I think I had an exceptional divorce. My ex-husband is a phenomenal person. Shout out to him. He made the process, believe it or not, very manageable and doable. To be clear, we got divorced when we still liked each other. And I don't know if that really makes sense, but we reached a point where it was like, okay, we've reached the point of being roommates. We still like each other. We still respect each other as people. But you know what? We're not a fit. We were probably never a fit. And that was really the reason for for divorce. There was nothing spectacular. It was almost kind of boring. And so we did everything together, including filing for divorce together. We talked about how much child support was going to be paid. No one dictated the way that we were going to get divorced. We're in the state of California. I know you guys are on the East Coast, but over here, you know, you file and within six months, right? That's the waiting period. If things go smoothly, then bada bing, you're you're divorced. And to to the exact date we were divorced in six months because we cooperated. It's I'm, so interesting to me how you can just love and, and fall in love with someone and then at the end of all of it, just shit on them. There's just something so not okay about that. It doesn't always need to be ugly. It doesn't need to be anything. I know that I was blessed. I was lucky. I don't have a normal divorce story. And I get that. I know yeah, that. I, I, I don't really have a normal one either because it's, it's, I mean, it, it, it was an, it's been an active process, the whole thing. And we worked together and, and in New York, we, you know, we went through mediation. We, we decided everything we signed off on everything, but like you said, it was boring because the truth is, is that at the end, I literally made a swipe of a pen across the, the window from a bank teller who was literally just stamping my papers to say that she notarized them. And it was, and that was the kind of thud or whatever you want to call it at the end. That was really kind of telling. Why do you think, go ahead. Yeah. No. Well, why do you like, um, why do you think that's there is, I agree with you that it's very confusing for me as far as like, how you know the word love is thrown around and how two people can connect and cohabitate and then you know a week later whatever yeah but then but then like you said i think you you use the term shit on each other or whatever so do, do i guess what my question is if you had to say like what is 
is it because of different attachment styles? Is it because people are just uh, not further along in their growth? Like what makes that, that so, what, what makes the shit fly? Because originally so? they probably got married for the wrong reasons because they weren't ready to get married because they had probably what we call primary attachments that meaning mom and dad or whomever raised you that did not show them what a healthy relationship looks like. So now we have two people from different backgrounds with baggage that has not been addressed individually. And so then we think, Oh, well, you bring your shit and I'll bring mine and we'll have a shit party. Like this is so exciting. Yeah, no. So I think that has a lot to do with it. For a lot of people, marriage, believe it or not, ends up being something on the checklist. I went to college. I got a degree. What should I do next? Now, I think this generation is a little different, you know, Gen Alpha, Gen Z. But if I look at the millennials and beyond, it's like a checklist thing. You know, when I ask my clients, hey, so why did you have a baby? Or why do you want a, why do you want a child? the majority of them cannot answer that question. It's a checklist. I know you cringe, but the majority of people cannot answer. And then I get, depending on, again, and I'm gonna talk about being Hispanic, right? Uh, my family's from Cuba, but sometimes you even get the answer, why, you know, you ask, why'd you have your second child? I wanted a boy. That's not a good reason to have a second child or I wanted a girl. Like what the hell, like, no. Is that a cultural thing, do you think? Or do you think it's a lack? Because I, because here's the thing, like our parents, oh. our parents shouldn't have had children either because they sure as fuck didn't clean up their shit. So, right. and, and, this, and this is a fact, most of us haven't cleaned up our shit. And, and again, we haven't cleaned up all of our shit either. Like our, all our shit's still not cleaned up. So we're going to pull that into the next thing too, because I know I'm not above my shit right now still. Oh my so, God, I've been in because, therapy for something like 15 years and I'm a therapist and I am very <laughs> open about that. You know, originally therapy for me started off as something that was part of my doctoral program and it was something that was mandatory. But then I was like, ooh, I like this exploration stuff. And obviously I stuck with it and I've been doing it ever since. But that is why I believe that I am a solid therapist. And that's because I talk my crap out with a peer, you know, hopefully more brilliant than I am. And, and there we are. No one's above help. No one's above. There's a lot of shit that I still don't know, or because right. I'm in the shit, I can't see my own shit. So someone please point it out. Thank you. That's right. what I was just going to say. Different things, super important. hundred percent. Different perspectives on on different things, like you said. If you're if you're in it, sometimes you don't see it. You know, sometimes if you can't step outside and look, you know, you need somebody else to do that for you. And uh, I I think that's an amazing thing. And I agree that even before you said it, it's gonna make it's gonna make you a better person. Therefore, make you a better therapist. It's probably gonna make you a better parent. It's gonna make you a better partner. All these things. I apologize to my kid all of the time. And it's a true apology. It's a, my son's name is Josh. And I'll say to him, hey, buddy, mommy's really sorry, you know, for the following. There is no but, there is no anything. I don't follow it up with, but you weren't listening to me because hell, that's not a true apology. I should not have snapped, period, the end. Mommy is sorry. 
And if that made you feel a certain kind of way, I am sorry, and I'm going to do better. That's an apology. You don't go to your damn kid and say, well, I'm sorry for slapping the shit out of you, but you were getting on my nerves. That's not an apology. So it all trickles. Marriage is interesting. And then we have kids. And then that adds an additional stressor. And just because you're good as a couple does not mean that you are going to be good as parents. There's this bizarre assumption that somehow getting married, like, well, but he was such a good husband. Yeah. Good parents and don't make good still, couples either, though. Mm hmm. I mean, you there know are some I mean? people who rock it as dads, but they have no business getting married until they heal up or whatever. Me, me. But I didn't, re but I didn't know that, though. That's the thing. Like, I did, I really didn't know that. And until it, it just took a really long time to finally. You know what? You don't know and... what you don't know. Right. And so your responsibility is once you do know to do something about it. Right. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences, though. There's tons of stuff that you don't know and you still have to pay the consequences for it. Oh, absolutely. You do. You certainly do. And and I think that's part of growth, though, isn't it? I mean, that's that's the whole growth process. There's no growth 100%. without pain. A hundred percent. Excellent. No, I, I'm, I'm enjoying it. You guys keep going. <laughs> He's like, just keep going. It's like, you just know, keep it's, talking. It's, it's interesting because we actually have had a decline in divorce and who really knows why. But I mean, the rate of, of marriage, people getting married and people getting divorced is, is roughly the same. We have had a decline. Yes, it is true to a degree that, you know, almost 50 percent of marriages end in divorce, some are dissolved. So the way that all of that is even how statistics are are lined up can be a bit confusing. But second marriages, we know, obviously, 60% of those or so end in divorce. And third marriages, we're looking at 70%. And so people ask, well, what in the hell is the difference? Well, in second and third marriages, number one, been there, done that, right? And so you're less afraid, perhaps, because you've already been you know, buried, resurrected, they've dragged you through the mud, they've taken your damn house, your pony, your dog, a country song, whatever. You've been, really, you've been, I'm sorry, you've been through it. Isn't that true? Like people always say oh. that like rap songs are about- Yeah, it's a country song, you know, your dog, like, your truck. Songs? That's right, yeah. they took your truck from you yeah. and it was lifted and it was pretty and now it's gone because you had to pay the bitch alimony. Like, okay, so- And Carrie yes. Underwood ran a key down the side of it. That's there what it is. is. Yeah, no, she likes that stuff. I should call Carrie Underwood. Maybe there's an anger management problem there. Anyway, it's making her money. Go for it. You go, girl. Anyway, so yeah, so so second and third marriages end in divorce because it's the, well, I've been there and done that. And the other is obviously emotional baggage from the past. You come into this brand new marriage without resolving what broke up your first marriage, right? That's That's huge. And you just think, oh, like I've healed. I've evolved. Really? Well, what have you done? You haven't read a damn book. You haven't gone to counseling. You don't listen to podcasts. So how are you different? How are you better? What have you learned? Mm, nothing, right? So there's that piece. And obviously there's the X factor. we got to bring them up, right? Because the X factor, when you do have bonus children, I hate the word stepchildren. It sounds so ugly. I like the word bonus kids, right? I've got two of them. But then you have the X factor. And then how does that play into... The marriage, because it does, right? Depending on how old the children are. And then obviously there's money. 
it's all of those reasons why yeah, money is money has so got to be a tough subject too, especially when it's when it's couples remarrying because of the system or the what the setup that they have sometimes. I'm sure. Oh my God! Imagine you're getting married to somebody and and you love them, and then they come with a price tag of you know two thousand dollars in alimony. That doesn't feel good to the new partner, but that's <laughs> the baggage that this person is coming in with. It's the truth. Yeah, I wonder no, who's going with a ton bag, but you had to pay your ex. Damn it! That's not fair. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we got a lot. I can buy it. my own. I can buy my own Louis Vuitton bag. <laughs> I can. <laughs> did, did you ever see yourself getting remarried yeah i totally believe in love and you know what the thing is though as cheesy as that sounds the biggest thing about anything that you'll ever ask me i really trust myself i really really do i know that i have a potty mouth i know i can be inappropriate but i'm a very very faith-based person and the person in my corner at least for me what i believe there is nothing that I can't do and that I can't overcome. So it never occurs to me that, that I'm just not going to make it. And, and heaven forbid, this doesn't make it. Guess what? I'll be okay. I'll be great. I'll move on. I'll do a podcast on it. Just kidding. Poor Nick. My fiance is like, what did you just say? <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I bet. I want to kind of bring it back yeah. to a question that kind of came up during or something that we noticed, like, what do you th what is a tip that you could give to people before they get married? Is it really just clean up your shit? Is that the biggest tip that we can give everybody? It's clean up your shit and be ready to put in the work. There is something to be said. You have to realize that you are going to walk into a space that needs training. You're going to need strength and conditioning of the mind and stamina. This is not easy. It is not always fun. And then of course, when you bring children into the mix, have children, maybe your children are healthy. God bless you. That's wonderful. That's great. Some children come into the world with special needs. They're neurodivergent and they require even more of you. So what I'm going to say is you need to get into decent shape mentally. Go to the damn gym, go to the soul gym, meaning go to therapy, go to a men's group, go to AA, go wherever you got to go so that you can start building those coping mechanism muscles that are going to help you get through the difficult times. It's easy, right? To get through all the fun shit. You go oh, on, yeah. you eat, you do this, you do that. And it's, it's all like shits and giggles until it's not. Nobody, you know, nobody tells you about the emptiness though, that you feel when you're walking out that night that you drop off and you're like walking away and you may not see your kid for a couple of days. And that, that the, the heaviness of that is, is not, I was not prepared for that at first. That hit, no, me, a, a, that hit me in a different, yeah, it hit me in a different way. And I, I wasn't prepared for that. And I, and it brought me back to my dad and my dad leaving me for a short amount of time. And I realized that he had to do that and stuff, but it was just, I, I realized how hard that must've been for him to those weekends where he would have to just come and hang out with me for a couple hours and leave and not know what was going on the rest of the week. What was something that you did for yourself during the proceedings and, and, and all through your relationship that kept you, um, kept yourself love intact? 
Like, what was something that you did for yourself during all this to keep you confident? And and what did you do when you didn't feel confident? I cried. I yelled. I kicked. I screamed. I was open. I was honest. I was vulnerable. I asked for help. And even though the divorce went well, you still hurt because a piece of you is grieving. You're grieving the life that you thought that you were going to have. You are grieving the children, the future children that you thought you were going to see with your partner. There is a lot of loss in all of this. You have to allow yourself the time to grieve, to make the time. I'm someone who has a very busy schedule, productive, not just busy, but productive schedule. I had to make time to cry. My therapist actually taught me that. It's something I had never thought about. So in keeping myself healthy, I took time out for myself. I cried. I did what I had to do. And it was helpful. And then I also had to like fact check myself. What is really happening right now? Am I making up a narrative that doesn't exist? Like my kid going away for two days. Can I not really survive that? Can I not really fill my days with something meaningful? And then that makes you take a look at you. If your whole reason for being is a person, even if that is your child, you will have a problem. You need to have stuff for you, hobbies for you, friends for you, time to see your dad and your mom without being bitched at by somebody else. You were their child before you were someone's husband, damn it. You know, people always come in here into my office, which I'm in right now. And by the way, someone said that my wallpaper looks like a vagina. Side note. Anyway. It looks like an avocado, actually. Thank you. See, it's all. But I can see where they would think that, too, in an odd sort of way. So looks like know. the shining a little bit. You know what? It's all good. I is it wallpaper? It is wallpaper. OK. Wallpaper like can still be cool. Hotel. It can still be cool. Yeah, it can. Still it be can. Cool. We had to glue it up on there because it kept falling down. Anyway, we're so funny. You are not somebody's other half. You are whole and complete and wonderful all on your own. And that is what I teach people. And I teach my son that. I'm sorry, when they ripped you out of my stomach during an emergency C-section, half of Josh was not born. All of Josh was born. So I often correct people. This is not okay. You're not someone's other half. You're not someone's better half. You are somebody all on your own, period. So I think what? even the drop off of children or not having them around makes you take a long, hard look at yourself. Like, who am I? What is my purpose? Have I even done enough for myself? What am I sharing with the world? I often find that people who are very miserable made it all about the kids. And I know some people disagree. It should never be all about any one person. Because you know what? Healthy kids will launch. They'll launch. They'll go to college. They'll get married. They'll find hopefully great partners. They'll have children of their own. And then what? You'll be sitting there looking at yourself, wondering, well, who the hell am I? What have I done? And then you're at the end of your life wondering this integrity versus despair kind of a space. Did I do enough? I regret this, that, and the other one. Wow, that's interesting that you chose to use integrity to despair. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, it's actually, funny enough, the last developmental stage by a theorist named Erickson. And he said that when we reach the end of life we're either we're either going to approach it in a way where there is integrity and we feel really good about what we've poured into this universe or we are going to die a death that maybe is not so great because there there's regret 
because there's sadness, because there's still no peace, because there's still chaos. I don't want any of that. And, you know, in doing hospice work, I'll tell you this. Individuals that did not clean up their shit and that had regret, their death looked very different. Very, very different. They had symptoms that were aggravating. I saw pain levels at a 10 versus Believe it or not, someone who was in peace, their pain levels were less. I would see, again, those in despair that were either throwing up or whatever it was, there was some kind of physical, physiological symptom going on that was just great and grand and terrible. And yet those that were more at peace and were like, no, I may not want to go, but I know that I did everything that I that I came to do. It looks very different. Can you reference what that is from again who is i've never heard of that before yeah so it's erickson stages of development wow okay because they teach it they teach it in like psych 101 and anytime you're going to go into the the helping you know profession as i'll be taking psych 101 soon because i've actually started to look into going back to school so Good for you. That's yeah, amazing. Well, well, we'll see. We, and, well, you've talked to talking, enough people. It's in the talking stages right now. I'm, I, I'm looking at how I can do this and make it work and still do everything else I got to do. Through the divorce, I, I was going to ask, what did you learn when you came out on the other side? Like, of the, you know, maybe going into this second marriage, what were you like? You know what? Like, I'm more confident about this or i'm going to strive to not do this sort of thing if that makes sense yeah i'm not going to bring dr a into the relationship i'm not your therapist i'm your wife i'm your partner i am not your damn coach i'm not your teacher i'm not i'm not your savior i'm not any of those things i just want to be your partner i don't want to save i don't want to rescue i don't want anything that doesn't mean i won't support But I have found, not just me, but when you get into the role of non-partner and you play any other role, all of a sudden, you're not attractive. Newsflash. When you're playing the mommy role, no one wants to sleep with their mom. That's weird, right? I know, right? You're laughing, but it's the truth. You can't become- No, I get it. Totally. I, I do because I because I, I get it because it's it's hard too because you see, you look at each other differently. I, I can't believe I because I can't believe that doesn't happen on both sides because it does. That's not sexy. That's not that doesn't make me want to jump anyone's bones. That's not OK. Like stay in the role of partner. Continue to have fun. Most of us are blessed to be able to access some sort of help. Right. Go and do it. Do your own work. I mean, I'm super supportive of my partner. But if there are any issues going on where there needs to be intervention as far as counseling, I'm not it. So I learned not to bring Dr. A into the relationship to a degree, which was very humbling because here I am thinking, oh, look, I'm the helper. No, shit. You're also helping to destroy your marriage, right? You have to be honest with yourself. How did you contribute to the end of all of this? And some people will say, no, but it was all them. But really? No, no, it wasn't. Well, he or she never did the following. Well, did you speak up? Well, no, I didn't. Well, you you spoke up when? Oh, on year 10. So it took you 10 years to tell that man or that woman or whatever, whoever you told. You are also responsible because you did not advocate for what your needs were. 
they don't know what it is that you that you need or that you want. You are hoping or making the assumption that they do and they don't. No one is, you know, no one has a, a crystal ball. I wish, but yeah, no, you have to communicate. So how do we start to learn how to communicate then if we don't know how? Because that's, I think, a lot of people's issue probably. We have to let go of fear. People don't want to communicate because they are afraid of the response. It's something that they may not want to hear. They may not want to sit with. They yeah. don't want to deal with it. We have a lot of avoidance going on and avoidance just destroys. In a relationship, we often have an anxious person and then an avoidant person. Can you imagine? Yep. Right? Uh, yes. Yep. 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 Well, then you have one person who's like, oh my God, why he doesn't love me? Why, why, why is he or she not talking to me? And like, what did I do wrong? And then you have the other person who's like, I ain't saying shit because I know she's going to snap at me. And then nobody's yep. talking. We have to normalize that arguing is normal, that disagreement is normal. You know what I tell my partner? I will always support you, but I don't agree with you. I don't like your idea. I think it sucks, but I love you and I'll support you, but I don't have to agree with it. So I don't know where the little handbook or this false like written, I don't know where the hell it's written that you have to agree on everything to be able to be a solid couple. No, you don't. You have to have enough compatibility, chemistry, both physically and psychologically, but you don't have to agree on absolutely everything to be okay. Agree. I think that was like, uh, that was like indoctrinated somewhere in the, the school system, maybe, and just through books and movies and. That kind of thing. Yeah, Disney lied, Pixar lied, like they're making a lot of money off of us, but that does not that does not exist. There is such a thing as healthy conflict and being able to grow and it feeling the sense of also empowerment. What a beautiful feeling to know that I am loved, that I am accepted, and that I am supported, even in the absence of my partner agreeing with me. That's the definition of unconditional love, if you think about it. I was just going to say that. It sounds like that to me, because I, I think that Will was, you were saying something about communication being a problem. I think that people are looking for unconditional love, but they have a bunch of conditions along with it. And, you know, they're not willing to do this, but they expect their partner to do that. And I, I think so that critical. It, it's it drives me nuts. It's crazy, though. But I, I, I see it a lot and I witness it a lot. And uh it's it's kind of terrifying. The I just don't think people recognize it. I don't think people recognize it because they don't want to recognize it. And they sure. ignore it. That's really what it is. I mean, it's ignorance. It's not anything else. I mean, if you get to a certain age and you're in a relationship and you can't see that there's that there's shit that either one of you has to work on, then you're both the problem. Like, that's just it. You're both the problem. So if you can't look at yourself in the mirror and say you got shit to work on, you can't admit it, then you need to get the far like you need to get the fuck out and figure out what it is because you're never going to you're never going to keep that relationship going. You can't. You have you know? to practice moving past the fear and saying what you need to say from a space of love. If you come at someone still from a space of love, even if the words are not perfect, you're going to be okay. So it's about practice. So communication or how do we start communicating? We practice and we move past the fear. And then there are obviously other, other techniques, other tactics that we teach. But 
I always tell my clients, just start talking. I don't care if they're I statements, I feel this way, I yada yada. No, okay, just start talking. Because that's it. And don't worry about how it's going to be received. Because right now, you know, it's being received something negative anyway, because you're silent. Is that a pretty prevalent combination of avoidant and anxious? It is. Do you see that a lot in, in your in your counseling sessions? Oh, my gosh, I absolutely do. Is it the most prevalent or are there other or do some do the other types? Is there another type that meshes together or not meshes together? as as unwell as those oh, two. Oh, you're going <laughs> to you're going to love this one. There are individuals who have a secure attachment and that's what we strive for. But here's the thing about secure attachments. They also think that they're invincible and that they can go ahead and take on the avoidant or the anxious or the whatever as a project. Bad news. Because then what ends up happening is that very secure securely attached person starts to doubt themselves, it changes. I can't tell you how many people who come in here and once upon a time had a secure attachment end up with someone who's got, let's say, narcissistic traits, start to become abusive, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, this very secure person is now someone who is anxious themselves and even a combination of anxious avoidant. So we see that too. Do you ever see, is it, I don't know if this is if this is typical or common. Do you see, like in that situation that you were just explaining, is it common to see if whether it's secure or not? But if they're if they're not one to have narcissistic tendencies or or manipulative tactics or whatever they may be, do they do you do you see when the 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 partner is doing it and then the partner that doesn't do it, do they mimic it? Does that make sense? Do they mimic the behavior that they're being given, you mean? Yes, yes. I can answer yes. Let me give you an example. When there is intimate partner violence present, eventually, and I'm going to use traditional terms because we've changed them throughout the years, but let's just use perpetrator and victim. We start to see the victim who's finally had enough that doesn't mean they'll leave, by the way, but I'm just saying they finally had enough and all of a sudden a slap comes from them for the first time. A manipulative tactic starts to come from them for the first time. And then they come to therapy and they're like, but I'm also a perpetrator. And then I have to explain it as, no, you are human and a human who was responding to an inhumane situation. And so then... It was like, well, shit, I, I can't keep on having someone hit me, so I will do the same. I can't keep on, you know, so maybe this will work and, and I'll gaslight or stonewall or any of the, you know, lovely Instagram psychology words. I'll do the same. So, yes, we do see some of that in some of the couples for sure. Awesome. That was a perfect answer. That's exactly what I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah, well, birds of a feather, right? But oftentimes people have to realize you marry your primary attachments. Like newsflash, you married your mom and dad wake up. And, you know, people think that gender has something to do with it, right? So they'll say that girls, women, you know, marry their father and vice versa, right? That that boys, men marry their mother. Not true. You will marry a primary attachment regardless of gender. 
So it could very well be that, you know, you are, you're male and all of a sudden your female partner has certain behaviors that are 100% your father. Who's the one that used to criticize? When I, when I ask my male clients, who's the person that used to criticize you? Who's the person that used to redirect you when they thought that you didn't do something in a certain way and it just wasn't good enough, you know, et cetera. And they'll say, this is my dad. Yep. And your wife does what? The same thing. You married your father. You know, the worst thing is about that, the same thing that you are craving from that primary attachment, usually you're craving from this partner. And so then it becomes incredibly toxic because you were just hoping and praying and begging that one day they will just say you are good enough. And guess what? They won't. They won't. And that always gives me chills to say because it comes up often. We marry our primary attachments and then we hope that they give us what we've been missing. And we don't generally. And we don't. Get right. It. Yeah. No, we don't. We don't get it. And again, that could, does go to the peg, though, about the communication thing, because I know a big part of my issue is I don't know how to express my needs. And that's something that I learned very young. Needs didn't matter. I felt I needed something that didn't matter. So it was kind of brushed aside. So I never really fought for, and I never voiced a lot of my needs. And I still don't sometimes. But that's the thing you, to your statement, you, you are good at it, but because it was shut down, you just don't bother after a while, but it's not your inability Maybe that's a better way to say it because that is kind of what it is. I just, you stop bothering after a while. You just become, you just become numb and it's just, you know. Well, it's also easier, is it not? Because sometimes you staying quiet means I'm safe. I avoided conflict. Yeah, you avoid conflict, you avoid no. You avoid no. Because hearing no is is painful. Or what you think is going to be is a no. So Right. Right. Is what you were talking about a little while ago with the, you know, the primary caregiver and stuff. Can you, I don't know if that, does that have anything to do with trauma bonds or is that totally separate? Trauma bonds are formed. They're related. They're often formed because of the things that we lacked growing up. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. That's the other thing too. When we talk about relationships, you know, oftentimes I I point out to people, I don't think you love this person. I think you're addicted to this person. And that's very different. And they stay because, damn it, I don't want someone else to have them or I can't picture them with someone else. But it's not because they make me happy. It's not because they allow me to grow. It's that they have now become my addiction. It's toxic. And I want them. They're not good for me. It's it, it's a it's a glass of wine. That woman that you're dating, she is your crack. She is your meth. She is your heroin. Pick your poison. It's destructive. So now what? Now you have to go to rehab for your addiction to love or addiction to a person. There are actually support groups. There are 12 step groups very similar to AA and NA for love addicts. Absolutely. They crave it so badly and it ends up being incredibly destructive. You know, their joy and their happiness, their hello codependency comes from that space. 
is that what it is? Is they're addicted to that feeling of love or that the the chase of being wanted? You know, the weird thing is, is they're they're just addicted to having someone next to them and the perception of love. But we know that that isn't love, right? In those in those toxic spaces. And then you know what what the most difficult thing is in counseling is when individuals who've been in a toxic relationship, really bad relationship, finally date someone healthy, they run. It's boring. They don't know what to do with it. And they will find the same asshole with a different name. It's the truth. Stability does not feel good when you come from a place of chaos. That feels very foreign. So, and do I even deserve to be in a safe space? Am, am I allowed to be vulnerable without getting slapped or yelled at or told that I don't bring in enough money? It's a very foreign thing for someone to say, to, a very foreign thing for someone to hear, I appreciate you, when they've never heard that before. I'm so thankful that you're my partner. I'm so blessed that you did the following thing. That is really uncomfortable for people. They would rather get called whatever name and four-letter word and, and, you know, like a potato thrown at them or something, a vase, potato, whatever, whatever floats your boat. But yeah, it's uncomfortable. Uh, all the good things that we talk about are uncomfortable here on Above Ground Podcast. That's, That's right. That's what we do here. That's what Dr. A does too on her podcast, The Misfit Therapist, man. All the time. You can check that out everywhere too, just like you can check ours out. So subscribe That's to right. both. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and fitting us in. And 152, Dr. A's last episode was. Yeah, 152. Wow. That's so crazy. I love being on with you guys. It's also nice to have the male perspective on things. And it's also just an amazing thing to have you be so raw and so honest and so just so much fun. You know, it's I think it's so hard for men especially to get through divorce somehow i think that they don't ever reach out for help the way that they should yeah they don't they don't know what to do with themselves right again back to the whole like we don't know what we don't know so there's no guidance to read this book or that book or to journal or to you know meditate or work on yourself or let's start pulling out the demons from the closet you know, skeleton, whatever, whatever you're into. I you got to start learning how to make friends with them and dance with them. Oh, I dance with mine all the time, man. That's right. I dance with and mine then you start the taking your body parts like away, you know? Hell I mean, yeah, you do. Course. You can make a super, you can make a superhuman throughout all those demons. 100%. My demons be driven, damn it. <laughs> demon. Yeah, you know, it's funny for me. Um, I just, I didn't know that there was things that, like, I just thought, I was an asshole and my life sucked. I, I didn't know there was things that could help and process and, and, and all this stuff. I mean, I was in therapy, but I just, I, 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 it didn't hit me. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. Like there was actually like steps and ways to improve yourself. I, I, I didn't, I was completely ignorant to the whole thing. But to your point, you've never been an asshole. Maybe you had asshole behavior but that asshole behavior was learned. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what? I think I'll be a dick. That sounds like a great idea, right? Like, no, we want to be genuinely liked and loved and be in community and have partnership. But when we haven't had 
a healthy upbringing and we don't know what that looks like, well, what are you supposed to act and be, behave like? You have no idea. Right. So we can... When someone coaches you and someone says to you, do you realize that your parents abused you? And they're looking at you all perplexed, like, no, that wasn't abuse. Oh, no, 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 that that was, that's what we call it. You may not want to call it that, but that's what we call it, emotional neglect. Your mother and father never validated your feelings. Children are to be seen but not heard. Do as I say, not as I do. That shit's gross, and it's abuse. People need to wake up to it. That doesn't mean, though, to be very clear that we're shitting on parents, that parents are terrible, we're all parents, and that yes, we are. That, that we hate them or that we can't have a great relationship with them. We're allowed to feel a certain kind of way about our parents and their deficiencies. We're allowed to hold them responsible and accountable. We're allowed to say, this hurt me when I was five, and five-year-old me shows up every time I have an argument. And that's what people don't realize, you know, when you do get into this kind of space and you feel injured, a lot of the times who actually shows up is little you, not big you. Big you can handle this. Big you knows to either walk away or big you will maybe give the middle finger and walk away because you're just over it. But the person who's really hurt is little you because usually that's a trigger from something that happened in the past. Just coming to life 35 years later. Yeah, it's always little you. I, that's what I found. I found little you. It's the it's those little moments to say, okay, this is your next growth spot. Here you go. This is what you need to heal now. That's that's what's been coming. That's what's been coming at me for the last like, I don't know, two plus years at this point. But I got to tell you, it's fucking tiring. It's fucking oh, it's tiring having all this shit awesome. to clean up, man. It's tiring having all this shit to clean up. It is. You know what I tell people to do? I tell my clients to find a picture of little them that they really, really, that just resonates. And I make them save it. And I tell them your goal each and every damn day is to protect this beautiful person because they don't have the self-love present all of the time to protect adult them, right? Because adult me doesn't somehow matter. But when you look at little you in that diaper with that little frou-frou dress that your grandmother made you wear, that was me, right? <laughs> Shit, that was big. That's a big dress. It's different because you would never hurt that person. You would never talk shit about that person. You would never, the way that sometimes you even talk to yourself. Are you kidding me? You would never say that to a toddler. That's crazy. That's asinine. Well, it is. So then why are you saying it to yourself? Well, it's abuse, right? Right. Kind of. Is that, I mean, isn't that kind of the, that would not be abuse too, if you were to talk it to a toddler that way, maybe? Of course. Wow. So that's why it's time to start protecting little us. You know, I uh, once sent a friend a plush toy and they were so perplexed and they're like, what's this for? And I said, for you to sleep with it because you need it. And they were like, this makes no sense. I said, do me a favor. I'll talk about it tomorrow. Just sleep with the damn thing. And they did. And I said, well, when you woke up, how did you feel? Or what did you notice throughout the night? Well, I noticed that I was hugging the toy and this and that. And like, I actually took care of it this morning and put it on my bed after I made the bed and everything else. Yeah, because little you needs to be spoken to and needs comfort and needs things that you've never had before. You're allowed to go backwards a little bit to be able to take steps forward. How do we find out what little me needs? Oh, man. 
it actually is is more apparent than you think. So for example, I mean, Will gave a great example of I'm I'm not good or I'm not good at expressing what it is that I need. Well, you've been told that too, I'm sure. Someone's probably brought it to your attention. And then as you look back, the question is, when was the first time that I denied myself as far back as I can as I can reach as, as I can think that I just stopped speaking up? And oftentimes you'll go back to childhood and say, oh my God, I remember that around the age of six, I probably said this or that. And my needs weren't met. And then I tried again, but then that was met with some sort of violence or just dismissiveness or whatever. And so I learned to be quiet. So it's more obvious than you think, you know, when you're yelling, let's say, let's say you were a yeller, right? You're, You're yelling at your partner, you're yelling at your children. And it's like, why do I feel the need to fucking yell? Because quite frankly, that's what was done to me. Right. And so then we look back and it's like, well, what does little me need? Little me needs not to be yelled at, which means that I cannot yell at my children the way that I am. You don't even realize that you're doing and then you're doing it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, I've, I've always said I don't want to be anything like right. Fill in the blank, my mother or my father. And then you realize that you are. When you yell at your kids, you're yelling at yourself. And that's a very humbling thing. When you react to your kids, it's you. It's a you thing. It's not a them thing. They don't know. It's a hard one. But that's how you find out. That's a to bitter, your current behavior. That's a bitter pill to swallow too for a lot of us. 100%. But I believe that there is such a thing as redemption and beautiful relationships. I don't mind sharing this. I had a relationship with my father. I feel like I've had two dads. Uh, One from age one to arguably, I'm going to say 27 and a half, and I'll tell you why. And then from 27 and three quarters to present day when he passed. My dad was someone who was just kind of more macho, you know, and Cuban and just you know, Ricky Ricardo kind of on steroids, he didn't really get me a lot of the times. And he didn't really get me as a child. He wasn't great when I was a child. He wasn't great when I was a teen. Some way I remember that we uh, had an argument and actually many people know this story and I'm not ashamed to share it. And I said to him something along the lines of this hurts, I'm hurting. And his response was, well, and how do you think I feel? And I blew it. I lost my shit because all my life, that's all it's ever been. Well, what about me? I don't give a shit about you. You're the fucking parent. I had just had Joshua. I'm a brand new mom. And I don't know what came over me, but I remember handing my child over probably to like my then husband or even my mother. And I said, dad, I don't give a fuck how you feel. I'd never answered my father in that way. But I said to him, but I will tell you this. If you don't change your behavior, you will never see me again. That's my boundary. I now have a little guy. It's different. The games change. I don't know what about that conversation. If it was fear, true fear of losing me, his own selfish fear of being alone as an older man. Hell, I don't know. But from almost age 28 to present day, I had the most beautiful relationship with my father. I got the apologies 
gives me chills that I wanted for 27 years. But it was because I finally put the boundary up, the boundary. It took me as an adult putting up a boundary. You can't say these things to me for it to change. That's all it took. So I know what it's like to have a parent who maybe wasn't stellar and then also see change. But my dad put in the work. I do have to say that. And not everybody's willing to put in the work. My dad did. All of a sudden, we were having conversations. We were listening to each other. We were exchanging information. I was asking stuff about the past and how he grew up. And it helped me to understand like where his fucked up thinking came from. <laughs> right? And I'm right. like, well, dad, because now I know where my fucked up thinking came from. You're like 50% of that. Thank you very much. But then there are pluses because in even the things that that he gave me that are maybe perceived as negative, he's also the reason why I'm so strong. He's also the reason why I don't take shit. He's also the reason that I have masculine qualities and I've been able to crawl up the ladder of success. I ain't afraid of nothing, right? And who taught me that? Taught it to me in the wrong way, but then I had to figure out how to use that in the right way because I can't just be slapping people around. You know, that's not a good idea. I lose my life, right? Right. And that, and that never happened in my home. My dad was more of just emotionally selfish, period, right? He just didn't, it was always like, well, how do I feel? I was the person who ended up having to like apologize for things that I didn't do mm. because I just wanted to keep the peace with my dad. And like, that's not cool. And then I found myself apologizing for things in relationships that I didn't do. And I'm like, fuck this. Where's my therapist number? We got to yeah. fix this. I'm not going to keep on apologizing. No. What are you sorry for? You didn't do anything. But so many people are in that boat. So I think that some people believe that it was all rainbows and but no, it wasn't. But he changed his ways. He put in the work and that was the rest of our time together. And it was amazing. And then I realized, it, my God, I'm much more like him than I thought. Thank you yeah. so much, Dr. A. Thank you so much, guys. I love it. Thank you guys for having me on. Thank you for giving us a listen. New episodes every Wednesday. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can share, rate, review, and even subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Other ways to support the show? Follow us on social media. Share the content. Share our episodes. You can also buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash above ground pod. For further concerns, show ideas, or just to say hi, you can email us at abovegroundpodcast at gmail. Once again, thank you for listening and supporting mental health. Keep the conversation going and stay above.